0: If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 472. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. Give me an email address while you're there and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by clicking on that McClanahan Academy link while you're there, get great courses, great content. You can also go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, True LearnTrueHistory.com. Click on that support tab while you're at brianmclanahan.com. Get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. My latest is The Jeffersonian Tradition. I've also got Southern Scribblings and a whole bunch of other books. The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, My Pig to the Founding Fathers, Pig to Real American Heroes, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Got all kinds of stuff. Forgotten conservatives in American history. All kinds of ways to support the show. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I like to get those, too. I may not respond back to you, but um, I do read them, so... All that is appreciated. Now, this again is a listener-generated episode. It was a question that I had read a book by Michael Lind. Michael Lind um, is considered to be a conservative. I would say that he's more in line. Lind is 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 interesting because Lind is a Lincolnian nationalist. Let me just say that. In fact, he describes himself, or at least he did in the 90s, as a liberal nationalist. Now, In the 1990s, in the mid-90s, when the book that he wrote was published, 1995, what I'm going to talk about today, he was working for the New Republic, which at the time was um, being um, edited by Andrew Sullivan, the leftist kind of conservative. I mean, there was an interesting break back before Sullivan left. And, of course, some of the people that were working at, the New Republic then forms Slate Magazine, which is lefty. I thought the New Republic had gone too right. While while Lind was there, they published Murray's 10,000-word uh, essay on the bell curve. They also were critical of uh, Hillary Care. In fact, they came up with that. So, I mean, the left, the progressive left, which found the New Republic, was upset that the New Republic had kind of shaded a little bit more conservative, but they, they really hadn't. And so Lind calls himself a liberal nationalist. Now, he wrote a book that came out in 2020, and uh, Pedro Gonzalez, who is now one of the uh, associate editors at Chronicles Magazine, wrote a review of it. And uh, let me go back. I guess the title of it is The Poor Man's Sam Francis. The title of the book is The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. And this came out again in 2020. And... Essentially, Gonzalez is calling Lind the poor man, Sam Francis. I don't agree. In fact, I don't think there's any comparison between Lind and Sam Francis. Sam Francis was a stalwart conservative, and he was always a conservative, a southern conservative, I should say, more important than anything else. And when I talked about Lind on this podcast in May, it was Yankee Revenge, and I think Lind did a very good job in that essay pointing out that the real problems we face are coming from New England and that there, there is a southern counterweight to this. He didn't say it, but that's what's there. And, of course, Lind is perfectly fine with Confederate monuments coming down because he thinks that's a good thing to do because it doesn't necessarily mesh with his liberal nationalism. I'm going to get into this. In fact, in 1995, when he wrote this book I'm going to talk about, he said this was the first of a manifesto. Lind was trying to reorient people into a position where they started thinking about America from a Lincolnian position. Now, he's against the Proposition Nation nonsense. I'll give him credit for that. But he has a problem with... Uh, decentralization. He has a problem with it. Now, this piece by Pedro Gonzalez, I want to get to to the top part of it. Gonzalez writes, a mostly white cosmopolitan overclass rules America with a technocratic fist through the union of public and private spheres after pulling off a revolution from above, Michael Lynn argues in his latest book. He said the exact same thing in 1995. The exact same thing. He had already started talking about that 25 years before this, a quarter of a century before this. As Lynn sees it, the country's political institutions are a facade for the corporate state, while our government is merely an instrument for the rootless transnational elite and avaricious politicians, both of whom are aided by a vast army of bureaucrats teeming with resentment for those whose lives they manage. They, the managed, that is, the rest of us, are lumped into a racially divided, proletarianesque working class with a largely native-born white core. Lynn writes, working class immigrants and some native minority group members whose personal conditions are improving compete with many members of the native working class, mostly but not exclusively white, who find their economic status, political power, and cultural dignity under threat from below as well as from above. The only winners are a third group, the mostly native, mostly white, overclass elites who benefit from the division of the working class. Now, he said much of this in his book, The Next American Nation, published in 1995, and the subtitle is The New Nationalism and the Fourth American Revolution. So he was predicting some of this back in 1995. Lynn's book explores the exploitation of immigration as a vehicle for overclass enrichment. On the one hand, immigration... Depresses wages for native-born Americans and robs them of job op- opportunities. It also radicalizes, I'm sorry, racializes the concept of the social safety net as immigrants and minorities tend to burden public services, which are subsidized by white working-class Americans. On the other hand, overclass hubs such as San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York depend upon the exploitation of immigrants as modern-day indentured servants. The economies of these local- locales are dependent on a low-paid servant class primarily made up of illegal and illegal immigrants whose perennially renewed presence keeps real estate prices high, even as Americans flee the smut and smog for the hills. Had international migration not compensated for the exodus of natives from the 1970s onward, Lynn notes New York City would have lost population, shrinking its property tax base by $500 over 30 years. Immigration keeps our urban Babylons alive, even after they have become the epicenters of our national death. Lynn's book is also filled with useful data on the issue of global labor arbitrage and other things. So, um, A meta-analysis of American policy issues by Professor Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page demonstrated the existence of this overclass that truly rules and governs America regardless of the systems of democratic governance. Their study, published by the American Political Science Association in September 2014, concluded that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while mass-based interest groups and average citizens have little or no independent influence. The only solution to overclass domination, in Lynn's view, is to stage a counter-revolution from below led by populists, defined as those who favor maintaining or increasing Social Security spending while maintaining or decreasing immigration. Lynn points to a 2015 survey that estimates pop, uh, populists constitute 40% of the electorate, showing potential for this kind of middle-class uprising. You see, and, and he says, this is called democratic pluralism, a system which power brokers who answer to working class and rural constituencies bargain with national elites in the realms of government, economics, and culture. The system can bring together American atheists and neo-pagan creeds like Wiccans to the table of uh, of comedy with Christians and pour oil upon the troubled waters of race relations. Lynn writes. Readers may wonder if Lynn is describing a nation or, a, or something like a boarding house, right? I mean, But the thing is, this is, this is Lynn's MO. This is what he's been advocating since 1995. and I want to get into this because I think Lynn is completely wrong because I don't think Lynn really understands the benefits of federalism. This is something we talked about in the last show. Lind is a nationalist, and he wants a national, one-size-fits-all policy. So, this book, the introduction says, Are We a Nation? And he, he lists, what he does here is lists three American revolutions, and I'll, and I'll explain what they are. He goes into detail, but he says the first is Anglo-America, the second is Euro-America, and the third is the making of multicultural America. But he has an entire chapter on the white overclass and the racial spoil system. This is 1995. Linda's been talking about this since 1995. And how the overclass is designed, the oligarchs, as the last podcast I talked about, are are essentially dedicated to ensuring that everyone stays divided. Because that works for them. Now, on the other hand, you could say that division with federalism would crush them. It would crush them because... They can't put out all these brush fires all at once. It would be too hard. This is what uh, Hume's ideal republic was all about. You create so much decentralization that you can't you can't centralize anything and control it all. This is why decentralization is the answer. So. Let me get into this. He says, Are we a nation? No, say the multiculturalists, who are found predominantly, though not exclusively, on the left. The United States, they say, is not a nation state. Well, I mean, this is true. It's not a nation state. Now, Lynn would argue it is. It's a nation state. He argues there is a national American identity. I disagree. And I think we're seeing that on a regular basis. The 1619 Project has exposed this for all of its problems, This is why the 1776 people are going so bananas, because they firmly believe that there is an American nation. 1619 people don't. They're saying, no, no, there's no American nation. Genovese, in his Slaveholders' Dilemma, said, you know, well, I mean, um, there's a nation within a nation, or he talked about it, I should say. um, uh, No, I think that was in his Slaveholders' Dilemma, he said that. Or it it was Roll Jordan Roll, excuse me. In Roll Jordan Roll, he said, you know, black Americans constitute... Um, you know, nation within a nation, perhaps, but any, either way, they're all American. you can say that they're American look the the idea that um black Americans aren't American, I mean, because you kind of get that at times, but they are they're an old part of American identity, but is there an American nation under the strict definition of the term? I would say there never has been an American nation, and same thing, I mean, John Taylor of Caroline would say that. John Taylor of Carolina, there's no American nation. We're not, we're not tied together with Puritans in New England. They're nothing like us. They're nothing like us, and I think that's the key to understanding it. He continues, though, they may disagree about how many American cultures there are. Multiculturalists and cultural pluralists agree that the United States is not a nation state like France or Poland or China or even Brazil, but a multinational federa- federation like Canada and Switzerland and the former Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. Well, I think this isn't 100% true. This is true. This is what it should be, a federation. And it was what it was designed. See, this is where Lind, I think, doesn't really understand what was going on. Now, he says that the original United States was an Anglo nation. An Anglo nation. It wasn't. Because it was pointed out over and over again, even in the Philadelphia Convention, we didn't have a national government. We didn't want a national government because there wasn't such a thing as an American nation. He says, a multiculturalism of the right is conceivable as a response by conservatives who wish to preserve cultural or racial purity through a policy of voluntary, ethnic, or racial segregation. I don't think that's true. I mean, he's see, this is the leftist and Ling coming out. Well, it's all about race or the people on the right. No, it's not. Cultural, you could say, it's about culture, preserving that. Is that race? Is that just culture? If one rejects the assumption, if, it is, if one assumes that America's of different races can, and in fact do share, not only a common civilization, but a common nationality, then the multicultural enterprises simply collapses. So if he says, if you reject it and you say there is a common nation, a common civilization, but a common nationality, then all of this falls apart. But is there? I mean, I think this is, it doesn't fall apart because we're seeing it now. We're seeing what the founders talked about in 1780, 1788, 1789, 1787 come to fruition. We saw it in 1861. There were different civilizations. There were different nationalities on the North American continent. The problem was you couldn't have one or the other dominate the government, because a central authority, because they would punish the other side. This is the whole benefit of federalism. The major opposition to multiculturalism today comes from democratic universalists, who are mostly, though not exclusively, on the political right. Are we a nation? The democratic universalists answer, no, as well. Universalists reject the multicultural celebration of racial cultural identities, fearing it will encourage the balkanization of America. This has been... I remember back in 2009 or 10, as I was writing for mainstream conservative publications, this was brought up to me. Oh, this is just balkanization. What you're talking about here is dangerous. And Lynn would probably say the exact same thing. What you're talking about is dangerous. Because we're, I mean, we got to have a union. Because what would happen if we didn't? We'd all fight each other. I don't think so. You have a union for common defense and commerce. But, I mean, imagine if... um, you could decentralize in a way that would respect people of different backgrounds and let them have their own, as long as it's Republican in form, let them have their own governments and their own societies, and their own things. If you could do that, would that not be good? And you could all say we're all Americans. I mean, um, if that leftist state is attacked, then the right will come and defend it and vice versa. It takes rewiring thinking what it means to be an American. However, they do not counter it with an inclusive American nationalism of their own. By their own theory, they cannot, for democratic universalists agree with multiculturalists that the United States is not a conventional nation-state. The United States, according to universalists, is not a nation-state at all, but an idea-state, as nationalists, as nationalists, I'm sorry, as nationalist state based on the philosophy of liberal democracy in the abstract. There is no American people, merely an American idea. See, this is the 1776 people. What he just defined in 1995 was the 1619 people and the 1776 people slugging it out. Though I would say the 1776 people have adopted the idea of Lincolnian nationalism within this framework of America as an idea. It's a proposition nation. Somebody who believes ardently in this founding idea, variously defined as human equality or natural rights or civil liberty or democracy or constitutional government, is a genuine American, even if he shares little or nothing of the prevalent culture, more as in historical memories of the American cultural majority. Americanness, in this view, is less akin to membership in a national community than to a belief in a secular political faith—the religion of democracy. Now, you could say that there are lefties that would do this as well. Think about Joe, Bi- Joe Biden. You get neoconservatives supporting Joe Biden because he, sp- he spouts this kind of stuff. You see, there's bleed over into other areas, and I think that this kind of America as an idea has now factored into the multiculturalist because they're saying, well, yeah, it is an idea, but we never lived up to it. We're still not part of the American conversation. This is the argument. And in fact, at the end of this paragraph, he writes, the fact that nowadays conservatives tend to espouse democratic universalism is surprising, inasmuch as this doctrine confuses the American nation with its government, a point lost on everyone on the right, except for a few paleoconservatives. Right? The, The old right has always been critical of this nonsense. He says, which one of these things is right? He asks the question. He says, these are the two schools of thought that have almost monopolized recent discussions of American identity. Both agree that the United States has never been a co- conventional nation-state and differ only as to what kind of non-national state it is or should be. Is the United States, as a multiculturalist, claim a federation of races, or is it, as the democratic universalists agree, a post-national idea state? Well, there is a third way, right? A federal republic. It's The problem is you're, you're arguing from a position of a national Government. It never was intended to be that. He's leaving out that entire thing. His language is distorted from the beginning. He's asking the wrong question. Not, is the United States a nation, or what kind of nation is it? Is it a nation at all, based on the original founding principles or originalism as espoused in the Constitution? Which, it wasn't a national government at all. We never had a nation, ever, from the beginning. And this was made clear in all the ratification debates. We're not creating a national government. One part of it can be national, the House of Representatives, but the Senate, which was the most powerful part of the entire system, checked all of that stuff. The Sovereignty of the states, as John Dickinson said, checked everything else. The answer, he says, is neither. The multiculturalists and the democratic universalists are both wrong. The United States is not and never has been either a multinational democracy or a non-national democracy. The United States has been, is, and should continue to be a liberal and democratic nation-state. No, that would say it's the United States. It's not that. It's a federal republic designed to absorb differences, as the multiculturalists point out, not on race, because culture is bigger than race. It's not on race. No, no. You see, the Federal Republic was designed to absorb the differences at the state level and maintain a union of almost incompatible things. This is what Governor Morris pointed out. Look, if we've are, if we got incompatible things now, let's part. Let's not even get in this union. But if we can somehow work those things out and create a union that best represents everyone and does things that are beneficial, well, let's do it. He says, the very notion of a country based on an idea is absurd. Well, I agree. There is no proposition nation. He says, what if two countries are founded on the same idea, say individual rights or the rule of law? Does that mean they are the same country? The communist states all profess to be founded on the ideas of Marx and Lenin, and yet Russian, Chinese, and Vietnamese communists remain not only distinct from each other, but often mutually hostile. At best, a political or religious dogma is merely one, and not the most important element of the culture that distinguishes one nationality from another. A nation may be dedicated to a proposition, but it cannot be a proposition. This is the central insight of American nationalism, the doctrine that is the major alternative to multiculturalism and democratic universalism. To the question, are we a nation, the American nationalist answers with a resounding and unequivocal yes. So, Lynn would say we are, but I would say we're not. But, again, the multiculturalists and democratic universalists are going at it in the wrong way because they're basing it on an understanding of the post-1865 United States or 1861. In fact, he gets the date right. He says the old Anglo-American republic dies in 1861. It does, right? That is, the, that is real America, though. Everything after that is a distortion of what that what that was intended to be. We might as well have rewritten the Constitution in 1861. The Republican Party should have. Now you could say, well, they did. They amended it. They added the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. It didn't rewrite a lot of the Constitution. And it created a whole lot of legal problems. He says, A real nation is a concrete historical community defined primarily by a common language, common folkways, and a common vernacular culture. But is that true do we have that across the United States? You ask almost anybody I do it every semester with my uh, in my day job with my students is I mean if you look at even in my classroom are people and it's not just race but culturally because you have people where I where I work from all over the United States and all over the world who have come into the United States so you look around at that room and you say, are we a national are we a nation here? do we have these common things do we have a common? Folkway? No, we don't. Do, Nor- Do New Englanders have common folk ways with Southerners, for example? Or how about uh, people in the Pacific Northwest? Do so they have a common folk way with Southerners? Are those things there? No. White and black Southerners have more in common than white Northerners and white Southerners, for example. Uh, what about a common vernacular culture? Or how about a common language? Do we have any of that? Uh, this is interesting because um, he he, said, he actually has a, a, a citation here. He says, For the nationalists, as for some opponents of nationalism, there is a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is allegiance to a particular government or constitution. Nationalism is loyalty to the interests of the cultural nation. The nationalist is willing to sacrifice patriotic duty to national loyalty, if necessary, as in 1776, when the American patriots decided that the needs of the American nation had to prevail over the allegiance of the British Empire. Governments should serve nations, not nations' governments. But this isn't what happened in 1776. Again, he's basing this on a distorted understanding of what happened at that time. This is where I say Michael Lind doesn't get a lot of things right and where he starts talking about this new nationalism, which he defines in the introduction is dangerous. He says the American people then constitute a genuine nation with its own nation-state, the USA, and with its own genuine, if largely inarticulate, nationalism. The really interesting argument, it turns out, is not the stale debate between multiculturalists and democratic universalists about what kind of non-national state is the United States. Multi or post, it's another controversy, a less familiar dispute, over how the nation in in the American nation-state is to be defined. In this debate, among nationalists, the two sides are nativists and liberal nationalists. So he's saying this whole idea of we're a nation or not, he says it's it's a settled thing. We're a nation. But what kind of nation? Nativists and liberal nationalists. And he's going to say he's a liberal nationalist. He says, for the liberal nationalists, the American nation is defined by language and culture, not by race or religion. He said the nativists, it's, it's race and religion. But to the Uh, To the liberal nationalists, it's language and culture. The national language is American English. There's various regional and subcultural dialects. The national culture is not the high culture of the art galleries and civics classes, but rather the vernacular culture that has evolved in the United States in the past several centuries and continues to evolve from the unsystematic fusion of various regional and racial customs and traditions. The liberal nationalist argument, it must be stressed, is not that a Transracial American nationality is something that will emerge in the future from the mingling of today's conventionally defined American racial and ethnic groups. Such mixing, rather, merely reinforces a common cultural nationality that already exists. He says the American cultural nation properly defined has included Americans of different races for centuries. Indeed, the transracial American nation is considerably older than the United States itself. For for several generations before 1776, a distinct, unique, English-speaking North American nationality, including slaves born and raised on American soil, had begun to diverge from other parts of the English-speaking world. Now, this is where I would disagree with him, because as David Hackett Fisher has pointed out, that's not the case. You had four regional folkways in America, and each were hostile to each other. Well two coalesced to make more Southern, two to make more Northern. But they were certainly hostile. So there wasn't a national identity even then. The founding generation pointed this out. It did not exist. But he says, Of the two rival versions of American nationalism, nativism has the greatest antiquity for the simple reason that most Americans until well into the 20th century thought of the American people as a white Christian nation. And this is where you get to this, you know, um, Reclaiming America for Christ and uh, Christian nationalism—I mean, this this kind of fits in that. Um, But again, that nationalism is wrong. It's wrong in its core because it doesn't recognize that the United States has never been a nation ever in its history. It wasn't designed that way. There is no American people. It's like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. It can't exist. The United States was a federation, a federal republic, a confederation of states that each had their own national identities in many ways. Jefferson called himself a Virginian. This is why he wrote his notes on the state of Virginia. He was asked, can you tell us what it means to be American? He said, no, but I can tell you what it means to be a Virginian because he didn't know what it was like to be a ma- person from Massachusetts or California. I, You go out, I mean, if I go and watch... Videos from people that do things in California. These people aren't like me. I mean, they live in a in the lower 48 of the United States, but they're vastly different from me in, in a lot of their manners and customs and language. I've often said, you know, if you want to drive people nuts in the north, go to the north and say, I'm fixing to go to the grocery store to buy some sweet tea and grits, and I'm gonna put them in my buggy. Right? They're not even going to know what that means. So this is, the, the language matters. Yeah, it's English. But does everyone in the United States even speak English anymore? He says, even though it rejects the venerable traditions of white supremacy and Protestant Christian hedge hegemony, excuse me, the liberal nationalist philosophy that I set forth in this book has deep roots in the American heritage, and the strong state nationalism of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Daniel Webster, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt, and the New Deal liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Lyndon Johnson that created and sustains a middle class that would be destroyed by unchecked capitalism, and most important of all, in the tradition of colorblind racial integrationism descending from abolitionists like Frederick Douglass to civil rights reformers like Martin Luther King, Jr., Liberal nationalism might be most simply defined as yesterday's melting pot nationalism updated to favor the cultural fusion and genetic amalgamation not just of white immigrant groups, but of Americans of all races. That's what he's setting forth. That is the 1776 project with some nuances thrown in. But they all agree on nationalism. I would say that in many ways... That in many ways, what Lind is laying out here in 1995 is the basis of the 1776 project. But it's not conservative. It's leftist. He calls it liberal nationalism. He says, since the 1960s, this version has been betrayed by the left by multiculturalists with their defense of racial quotas and their conception of the United States as a federation of genetically defined nationalities. It is time for the American center-left to reclaim the colorblind idealism that should never have been ceded to the reactionary right. He's calling himself a central leftist In other words, he's calling himself a 1776 guy. He's saying, look, universal democracy, all that, we, we, we gave it to the reactionary right. Uh, but belief in democracy and, one, and strong national government, we gave that to the right. This is when... Um, you know, when I when Pedro Gonzalez writes about Michael Lind being the next Sam Francis, the new Sam Francis, the poor man, Sam Francis, it's ridiculous. Lind is on the left. He says it. Now, we can agree with some of the things he says there. Uh, if you're a paleo-conservative, or, you know, if that's your, if you are that, you can agree with some of the things he says. The Southern critique of uh, industrial capitalism, certainly is something Sam Francis is aware of, the... Uh, the plutocracy, the oligarchy, these kind of things, the radical elites, the cultural managerialists. I mean, these are things that Sam Francis pointed out, what Southern conservatives have been critical of for a long period of time, but the origins of all that would never have sided with the idea that the American states are a nation. He concludes, he says, This book is the first manifesto of American liberal nationalism. Liberal nationalism is not the only way beyond the present stalemate of a discredited multicultural liberalism and a plutocratic conservatism. It is the only path, however, that can lead to an in which you and your descendants would want to live. This is it. I mean, this is the fourth revolution. The fourth revolution. So I wanted to touch on that because I think what we're seeing, I mean, Michael Lind being uh, listed as a conservative now in this new book and Chronicles covering that back in October. We have to be very careful with someone like Michael Lind. He's certainly pushing a left of center position in 1995, and I don't think he changed. What's happened is if that's now become conservative, then we've we've really lost. But I mean, it is considered conservative by the Claremont people. The real American conservatism is states' rights. The real American conservatism is decentralization. That is the real American conservatism. Recognizing that differences exist in people in the United States and that we have a central authority that can handle those differences if it's sufficiently decentralized to allow the states to legislate for themselves and be based on the principle of self-determination and self-government. That is important. Not one-size-fits-all, all we got to have a supreme leader come in and change us from the top. Not American uh, liberal nationalism or American nationalism or 1776 nationalism, which is going to alienate a whole other group of people. Not any of that. It actually allows for the Nicola Hannah-Jones to exist and have their place. The people that think like her to have their place in America. It's peaceful coexistence. Not one size fits all, but peaceful coexistence. We have to understand what that group would have to recognize is that you may not get your way in every state, and this is what people would have to accept everywhere. I'm going to live in a state that suits me, and if I go to another state, I may not get my way domestically, but I am going to be protected, and I'm going to have a commercial free trade zone. and These are things that are going to work for me. When you start trying to say, well, uh, I live in this state, and that state is still mine, no, it's not. It's not yours. You don't live there. It's, that doesn't reflect you. The whole idea of one people, one America, this is the real problem. It always has been the problem. It's always the fly in the ointment. It's always the, the wrench in the spokes. The hub has always been a federal republic, limited by the Constitution, and, of course, decentralization and federalism. This is always... The important part of it. All right. So, that said, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.